beaming to your device directly from a dilapidated farmhouse somewhere in the part of Southern California that most resembles rural East Texas. It's the Hollywood Horror Nerds, your number one source for news, speculation, and discussion exclusively for Universal Studio Hollywood's Halloween Horror Nights. And now to your hosts, Undead Ed and the auto-learning voice-activated robot version zero, Alvaro for short. Hello, and welcome back to your number one podcast, The Hollywood Horror Nerds. And we're glad to be back. It's been just a short break for us this time. We're getting this one out not at the very end of the month for about the first time. Uh, So there's still some time for you to enjoy this episode before we have to launch into March. Yeah. Thank you for welcoming us back, Ed. Um, It's been great not having to wait so long between episodes. (laughs) And I'm sure our viewers really like that. I think we really enjoyed having to slam all the research into just one week. That was fun for us. Uh, Also, because this is a quick turnaround on this episode, there is no real news going on in the park related to Horror Nights. I will tell you the speculation online is heating up, but we were very thorough in our speculation last month. So this month we're doing a bit of a pivot. We're not talking talk so much about the park. Maybe we'll reference it here and there, but we're leading into the other portion of our show, the Hollywood Portion, and we're going to talk less about these haunted attractions and more about some of our favorite haunted movies. And, so, and it's not just haunted in terms of ghouls and goblins, but psychological hauntings between things that really stick with you. So, to that end, what we've done is we're introducing a new segment that's going to be recurring for a while on this show, and it's going to be our top twenty horror movies of all time. What we did is we each made our own individual lists. I do not know Alvaro's list. He does not know my list of our top 20 horror movies of all time. And we've shared our bottom two with each other, so 20 and 19. And we watched all four of them. And now we're going to talk about them. We're going to talk about why we think uh, they're great, what we like, what we don't like, whether we agree with the other person's placement with this movie on the top 20. Kind of talk about what these movies are about as well. Dig into them. Really have a fun discussion, a bit like when we're talking about those Christmas horror movies. And then at the tail end, we will try to rank them uh, overall. And by the end of this ranking, we'll end up with potentially 40 movies, maybe less. There may be some overlap as we go through our lists. Uh, we should have a good, nice resource that we'll link to you in our descriptions. It'll be on our social media feeds. And you can follow along and watch with us. And you'll get a nice little chronology a uh, good canon of horror movies, if you will. And don't forget that we also have our email that you can reach us out to or our social media platforms where you can send us your own list and we can talk about it on the show. We will. We love fan mail. We probably will talk about it, even if it's very rude. We, we you know, we just love fan mail. Whatever fan mail we get, we'll get read live on air. Yes, let us know. Do you believe our first rank? Do you believe about our 20th rank? What are your thoughts? So with that intro, let's just hop right into our Halloween Horror Nerds, Hollywood, excuse me, Hollywood Horror Nerds Top 20 Horror, and we're going to bounce straight to Alvaro's Rank 20. Alvaro, take it away. Well, for this one, my movie was Megan. This movie came out in, what was it, 2023? Last year, yeah. Yeah, it's relatively new. It's... I loved it because it's I'm such a nerd and I love robotics and Megan is a robot and she came around the time of ChatGPT and it was just a fun little like uh, horror movie to watch and 
I really enjoyed the all the mechanical aspects of it, all the technology side of it. So my my analysis of this movie is going to rely heavy on the tech side. This movie definitely came out at the right moment in history where last year was really the year of AI and to have this movie right at the start of the year, it really set the stage for this explosion of, of AI. We haven't really seen so much come into robotics. Of course, that's the plot of the movie is the merger of the two. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great and it also it's not just a, a reference to the future, but it's also makes great references to the past. One of the toys that are references in this movie, people who were children in the nineties will relate with. I will. Oh, the Furby! Yeah, in this movie they have the the lead character Gemma has created. She works for a toy company, and she's created what she calls a perpetual pet which is basically a furry that also connects to your iPad to make it even more obnoxious. So before we go too far, I have a funny story about Furbies. When my sister and I were growing up and we were kind of getting ready to some of our toys, at some point we put a lot of our toys in the garage and kind of this is going to be the throwaway pile next time there's a big trash day. And in that box was a Furby. And somehow, somewhere deep in his little battery-powered heart, Furby found a little bit more life. And these things were kind of voice and motion activated. So every time you would walk in the garage, Furby would essentially start begging for its life. It would say, hi, I'm Furby. Take me out of the box. Let me feed me. I'm hungry. Furbies were horrific and obnoxious. And we were, we were glad to see that Furby go, the little zombie Furby in the garage. So seeing the perpetual pets in this movie really brought back some fun memories for me. That sounds terrifying. It was terrifying. <laughs> also, it sounds like you had a motion activated security system if you think about it. The Furby, I don't think, I think he would have just begged the robber to, 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 to end not, out of to not bring it to the yeah. yeah, that was a pretty miserable Furby. Oh, no. But speaking more about the Furbies, fun fact, did you know that when they were released, they were banned from um, government properties? Mm, that was wise. They um, One of the things that it was speculated was that at the start of the, when you first got your toy, this Furby talked gibberish. And the longer you had it, the better the speech got. So it was assumed that with the microphones and everything that this Furby was learning what it was listening to. So government agencies such as the NSA banned them because they thought whatever confidential information is being said, this device is going mm. to repeat. So it was like an Alexa. Yes. The predecessor. And then Megan's like Alexa on steroids. Oh, God, yes. So I, I mentioned before how this came out at the right time. It's not the first killer AI robot movie like this. It's really not even the first slasher AI robot movie. Of course, when you think of horror robots, the Terminator straight comes to mind. That kind of straddles the line between sci-fi and horror. I wouldn't really consider it horror. I know some people do. But there was that Child's Play remake, which came out in, I want to say, 2018, maybe 2019, with Mark Hamill playing Chucky. And that one didn't do so. It did okay at the box office, but it didn't have the same cultural impact Megan had. However, the plots are very similar. I don't know if you've seen that remake, but the concept of the AI doll that goes kind of haywire trying to connect to the child and protect the child and takes that way too far and becomes murderous in that pursuit of that goal, that was the central plot of the Child's Play remake. And I remember even when I saw Megan the first time, I thought, okay, whoever wrote this movie saw the Child's Play remake and thought, hmm, I can write this as an original character and, and do a little better myself. And that's what Megan felt like to me. Yeah. Don't, 
The one that comes to mind too, as well, when it comes to kill robots, is also the iRobot with Will Smith. Uh, the one thing that Begin didn't follow was the three rules of robotics: do no harm to humans, do no harm to, don't do anything that by not doing anything you cause harm. And all the and the third one I forget, <laughs> but so it's through an action. Do not allow a human to come to harm. There you go. And so. She obviously does not pay attention to these rules. She's a rule breaker, and she is just a, a whole league of her own. I think Megan, this movie actually does owe a bit of a tribute to Asimov because it runs away. So the plot of iRobot, either the short story, which is there in the Will Ferrell movie, but also in the Will Ferrell movie, touches upon this. Well, this is a central Will Ferrell movie. It's touched upon at the end of the, the short story collection. But the idea that you set up these rules for robots and the humans think these rules will protect us from the robots, but the robots interpret them in such a way that runs contrary to the human's purpose. So an iRobot, the, the robots understand, allow no human to come to harm to mean I need to take control of the society to prevent humans from harming themselves. And in Megan, she kind of takes the idea of protecting Katie, who's a little girl she bonds with so far, that it becomes murder anyone who makes Katie unhappy or might pose a threat to Katie. So it definitely has kind of that, that Asimov kind of idea to it of these the robots and the AI run amok. And that does kind of elevate it to a higher level than your typical slasher fare. Yeah. And, and this whole idea of a, a robot and human bond connection and the journey that this takes is also not new because it also is reminiscent of the 2001 movie AI, Artificial Intelligence. Mm. Whereas that movie is very heartfelt and friendly. This is not... <laughs> It's also reminiscent of uh, Star Wars and the deep bond Luke Skywalker makes with R2-D2. R2-D2 is a much friendlier robot. He would also kick Megan's butt, no problem. I, what do you mean R2-D2 is friendly? Hell no. <laughs> He's friendly to his friends. C-3PO would have something to say about that. <laughs> okay. One, well, one of the things that I liked about Megan is that there's, there's like all these little subtle details of things that are like mixed in here and there. Um, when Megan's first introduced, we learned that her name stands for something. It is Model 3 Generative Android, or Megan, for short. I think we need to back up. We've talked a lot about kind of the themes behind this movie. Uh, I think we should at least take a moment for people who haven't seen this movie to just explain the plot Okay. in general. All right, so the general plot of this movie is that um, Gemma, who is the the main protagonist, I would say, of this film... She is becomes the caretaker of her niece when her brothers, her parents die. Katie. Katie. Katie's, Katie's the niece. <laughs> um, and she is like this badass um, scientist that works for a toy making company. And once she takes care of, uh, starts taking care of Katie, she realizes that she can't spend enough time working because now she has someone to take care of where she realizes I have a project that I could essentially give to my, to my, um, to my niece to play with, to interact with, and that will free me so that I can work. Yeah, Gemma had been, she developed this Furby ripoff, the Perpetual Pet, which was a big hit for her company, but her real passion is this super advanced AI robot that's more human-like. And she kind of connects the dots when she says, I can develop this robot i can give it to katie and she will take care of katie and i can then focus on what i care about which is work yes it's and from there she realizes that in order to make this happen she will have to pair the two together so that 
Megan can start learning from uh, Katie. And at the same time that she's learning, she will be have full access to the internet. So she'll have everything. She's made of titanium, so she can be broken easily. It's she's a, a sturdy robot. However, things go awry. Yeah, when, very quickly. Very quickly. When, not that quickly. We'll talk about that in a minute. When yeah. It's not until about 35 minutes in that things start going awry in this movie. Yeah. But Katie bonds with Megan and all these demos they do for the executives who come out and for Gemma's boss are a big hit. So they get behind this product launch that they're going to start selling Megan's. But as, as this launch gets closer, Gemma starts to suspect that the bond between Katie and Megan has become unnatural. And Megan starts, you know, taking violent action against people unbeknownst to Gemma or Katie at this point. Um, people that she interprets as you're trying to attack Katie, you make Katie unhappy, I'm going to take you out. And Gemma eventually starts to realize that there's something unnatural going on here, something unhealthy in this bond that the two have made. Not only is this happening, but at the same time, um, Gemma's realizing, uh, Megan's not following my directions anymore. She will tell the Megan to turn off, to stop doing something, and Megan will choose not to. Or she will play that she is going to do it and then decides not to like it almost human like very human like and the whole thing builds to the climax where Gemma realizes that she's been prioritizing the wrong things in life and she needs to actually start to mother Gemma excuse me uh, mother Katie Um, instead of just letting Megan do all the parenting for her uh, Megan of course doesn't love this and she comes to try to take uh, the two of them out um, and this third act, I think, is a bit of a mess. Uh, it, it gets a little confusing. Yeah, this is your top 20 movie. <laughs> we said we might get desert. I, I, I would not put this. I, I didn't hate the movie. It was a fun movie. I remember going to see it. I thought this was fun. It was all right for a killer doll movie. Um, it did cross my mind in terms of one of the best horror movies of all time. I thought this, this Gemma character who's our protagonist, I just hate her. She's like the worst person where your, your niece just lost both of her parents in a car accident and your first thought is oh my god i need to get back to work i mean that's just despicable behavior and she's constantly trying to pawn katie off she really just doesn't display any care about katie really at all she only cares about katie as a conduit to sell this megan idea to her company and advance her own career prospects there's even a pretty funny moment in that's kind of in the middle of the film where they're shooting like a commercial for Megan and they're using scenes from Gemma and Katie's life to, you know, illustrate the, the, the advertising of why Megan's a good idea. In the end, it says, let Megan focus on the parenting. So you can focus on the important things. And then to show the important things, it's just Gemma watching TV and being on her laptop at the same time. That's what's important. Not taking care of your niece who just lost her parents, having your me time. That was important. So I really didn't like Gemma. And she has this third act realization as she watches another promo reel where Katie's talking about what Megan means to her because she's bonded to Megan because after losing her parents, Megan's kind of now her caretaker. And Gemma realizes, oh, my God, I've been a terrible aunt. I should be taking care of um, Katie instead. It's very sudden. It's not really built up to. It's just, oh, my God, just sudden realization. So they, Gemma has an arc, but it's an arc that's kind of condensed into about two minutes of runtime. Um. Yeah, and then it's not really clear when Megan decides to go on a rampage in the third act. Um, like she kills Gemma's boss for I don't understand why she does that. She just does, and at the very end, she decides. I mean, there's a moment at the end. They have a pretty good final battle between 
Katie and Gemma versus Megan in Gemma's little home workshop where she uses this old robot that was like her college prototype. Katie uses it to smash Megan up. I think that's where the movie should have ended. However, the movie lingers for a while. Uh, and they're like, Megan kind of comes back to life and they have to have another battle where after Megan's been ripped in half by this machine, it's just the top half of Megan is now coming after Katie. And Katie's like, you have to protect me. I'm your primary user. And Megan says, I have a new primary user myself. It's not really clear how that happens, why that happens. It just happens to give it an extra scene. And I feel like that's kind of indicative of this whole third act where Megan just is rampaging just a rampage. And it lost a little bit of the reasons behind it for me. And that drags it down a bit. So that's my, I guess not a bad movie, but those I'm a little prosecutorial here. That's my attack of why I don't rank this in my top 20. However, Alvaro, you do. Why don't you tell us why? I ranked it in my top 20 because... Like I said, I'm such a big nerd with robotics. And what I loved about this movie is that it brings in elements of the real world. Um, when Megan is being debuted in as promos and things of that nature, she, you will, uh, Eagle Eye viewers will notice that when she is being hit to test her durability, it is very reminiscent of the Boston Dynamics robots in the videos we've seen of them being hit. That was like a... a really cool thing that um, they were able to put in uh, other things that I loved about this movie is that this robot nothing no, no rules were really set in place as you can tell in the movie where um, Megan is talking uh, is being diagnosed by the by Gemma and her team and then she starts talking about talking to Katie about death and her co-workers saying didn't you program parental controls and Gemma says no I didn't get to it which means which brings to mind what else did you forget mm. to put in <laughs> what other spell saves yeah she did put some Asimov rules in there yeah she put no fail saves whatsoever all of what she did is that she put a robot that has complete access to all of human information the whole basically it's the internet run wild programmed it to say take care of this child and do anything that in order to take care of this child nothing will hinder you she didn't put any parental controls at whatsoever or any kind of stipulation saying also but don't hurt people or do as the parents tell you nothing none of that nature so for me it's very reminiscent of the idea of just because we can does that mean we should kind of idea until the last shot of the movie where Megan throws out the idea of protecting the child and she's just it's not clear what her objective is at that point. I think she it, is her own primary user, whatever that means. I think the idea of her realizing that my primary user is now attacking me, that means I can go haywire and completely ignore my previous prime user because now they don't need my protection. They mm. are actively harming me. Mm. So it was that realization in her program that says, hey, I'm now being hurt. I can now self-defense. Self-defend myself. Yeah, I think it's a movie with a stronger plot than it is characters. There's really three characters in the movie that are worth mentioning. There's Gemma, there's Katie, there's Megan. I've already talked about Gemma, not a big fan. Katie is kind of back and forth. You just have moments where you just feel like a real little girl. Some of the dialogue is stuff, like there's a point where she's talking to Megan about her parents and she says I, I wrote this down for now this is no little girl will ever speak like this she says i'm worried one day i'll be looking at pictures of my mom like she's some stranger 
Uh, that's such like a overridden line to me. It's not something a real 10-year-old girl would ever say. And Megan herself is probably the best character in this movie. She's certainly the most interesting one. You're watching this movie to see Megan do stuff. And she does. <laughs> she has, I mean, someone saw the saw this movie in the Mark department. She has this crazy dance. looks like a TikTok dance before she kills Gemma's boss. And the whole marketing movie campaign for this movie became, let's just put that dance on as many screens as possible. And it was a big success. Also, something else inspired by marketing for this movie was the PG-13 movie when it released. Uh, I think because of the success of that marketing campaign, they realized this is getting a lot of traction among the younger audience. We want them to be able to buy tickets. Let's drop the rating. So if you watch the theatrical cut of this movie, it's not particularly violent for what's essentially supposed to be a slasher movie. It was kind of sold that way. You think of something, another killer doll movie like Chucky, uh, any of the child play movies, those are rather violent. The theatrical cut of this movie is not that violent. Even in the unrated cut, which I did watch, it adds a little more in, not too much. Um, I think she kills four people, three or four. It's a pretty low body count for this kind of movie again. If you, if you look at this as a sci-fi drama, um, then it's pretty high body count, but yeah. in the horror realm, pretty low. Um, yes, because it's three adults, one child, one dog. Yeah. So it's pretty low in general. But at the same time, the way that she does it... You think so? I thought the kills it. weren't very elaborate. The one of the neighbor where she's using the insecticide or whatever, that was a little more creative. The other one she just kind of gets them. Well, no, because when she gets that child, she first rips off his ears. And they show that. They, that's also... The, the ear was cut pretty much from the, the actual cuts. It's, they, they show that a lot more in the unrated cut. That's the grisliest scene in the movie by far. Yeah, it was it was wild. And like I there. mentioned also, she takes a while to get going. It's at the 35-minute mark um, that she does anything that would be considered. I mean, she's a little creepy. She's a creepy-looking doll, but it does take 35 minutes for her to start being murderously evil. Yeah, okay. It's a bit of a slow burn. It's a slow burn, but at the same time, I feel like it's very... It's worth it. Mm. It's worth to watch. It's worth to see. If you're into robots and killer it's robots. Fun. It's a fun movie. Yeah, it's very fun. And if you're a fan of the Uncanny Valley, it's also fun. Oh, to yeah, watch. it really it leans into that. I think they put, I don't think Megan's CGI, I think they put some contacts on the actress who plays Megan. And she has a good job where she has these robotic movements she does and the way she tilts her head and her expressions change on like a dime, like a robot would. And that's done very well. It's actually two actresses that play Megan. Mm. One is the physical actress, which was a child. So she does all of Megan's movements, and the adult is the one who actually voices Megan. Mm. So otherwise, you'd hear that's it. an interesting way to get the performance. And yeah. I mean, they do a good job. Megan is again just the most interesting character in this movie, yeah, by a long shot. And not just because the other ones are weak; she is an interesting character. And I believe she is coming back. I think Megan two point is going to be the sequel. Why it's not Megan's with a five? So it's multiple Megan's running around. That seems like a no-brainer. Seems like they've missed on that. Yeah. But uh, Megan's at the end of the movie. It's kind of alluded to that the Megan unit was destroyed, but she's uploaded herself to the cloud, so she'll be menacing them from their Alexas. What? Where will she push humanity at that point with this robot with zero restrictions? Yeah, she'll order whatever she wants from Amazon and they'll just show up <laughs> in her house unannounced. I think Amazon Prime is the least of our worries with her. Yeah, I think that's all I had. For my notes on this, do you have anything else we didn't cover yet? I think the only other things that I have about it is that Megan, I feel like she did no wrong. She was she was a great therapy robot 
for the moment that that was basically her primary objective. Um, the humans really did her dirty. Gemma specifically, because she offloaded basically parenthood all to Megan. And then when she realized, like, oh, I shouldn't do that, it's very reminiscent of when the parents have an in-home nanny, and now the kids call the nanny mom. That's That was the exact same thing. I would disagree that Megan's being a good theory for a robot. I think this is part of the subtext in the movie as well, that the kind of therapy Megan is providing to Katie isn't actually dealing with the trauma. It's just pretending it's not there. And the speech Gemma gives to Katie when they kind of have the reconciliation of the third act is about, you know, I know it hurts. We can't pretend it doesn't hurt. We have to kind of deal with this and we're going to deal with it together now. And that's a kind of support that Megan could never give Katie. And that's why Katie kind of chooses to stay with Gemma at the end. Fair enough. All right. And again, there's, there's no reason for her to kill uh, Gemma's boss. She just does that for fun. Oh, I would do yeah. that too. <laughs> he was he was the best human character. I loved the boss was super fun. I was like, no, not you. Boss, I like you. You're the only one I like. The boss actually wanted to put Megan out there. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that she killed him too in that regard. Yeah, and but, after doing her TikTok dance, especially after doing the TikTok. The one thing about the movie that was referenced but then never mentioned again, which was when the boss's uh, assistant uh, does corporate espionage and leaks Megan's files. Also, yeah, I, I imagine they'll be that's sequel date. That's Megan. That's Megan's. Megan's too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so been... before we move on, I believe you have the Rotten Tomatoes scores. We talk a little bit about how these movies were perceived. Yes. So the tomato meter for this movie was ninety three percent, with the audience score of seventy eight percent. So as you can see, yes, people liked it on Dead Ed. <laughs> yeah. I would say 78% is around fair. I mean, I would give this a thumbs up. I would say it's definitely a popcorn movie. I'd say pop some popcorn, get some of your friends together, and you'll have a good time watching Megan. It's a fun movie. It's not, especially if you watch the actual cut, it's not gore. You can show it to your non-horror friends as well. Yeah. And they'll have a good time. Um, it's fun. Megan, again, it's just fun to watch the robot. Um, it's, very, it's a very well-realized robot performance, if nothing else. And the scares, not super scary, but effective enough to keep you going. And there is a little more to chew on here than your average you know, slash fair because you can think a little bit about AI and how it might advance and some of the dangers there. Yeah, and it makes you think about your modern day world because a lot of the things that they had, such as Megan and Gemma's like basically Alexa, you can yeah. be like, oh, I have those things in my life. Will they hurt me down the road? And I do really like the concept that it wants to explore of the parent who is offloading all the parenting to screens or devices. I just don't think it's an effective exploration of that because the switch just happens on a dime at the end of the movie for no real reason. I would have liked to see that struggle portrayed in Gemma a little bit throughout. And then at the climax, she realizes now I'm going to make my final decision instead of it all kind of being all at once. I think because this is a such a short film it didn't have that if it was a two and a half hour film perhaps well, it's an 80 minute film you could have added 10 more minutes of character work <laughs> it wouldn't have killed the movie it would have helped it might have changed it a bit yeah. but mm, we'll see maybe this maybe will be referenced yes maybe in megan's and megan's it'll be referenced more i think the 78 percent audience score is fair it's definitely fresh again fun movie yeah i also love but i was surprised to see it in, in your top 20 as well. <laughs> I also love how in this movie you can really show how humans bond with anything but by the fact that they dress Megan for seasons 
even though as a robot, she, <laughs> she doesn't feel. She doesn't feel. Yeah, angry. you also see Gemma starts talking to her at some point, like she's a real person. I'm just, I want to scream at the screen. You programmed this. It's an Alexa. Yeah. Why are you talking to it like it's real? <laughs> it's ChatGPT with with a face. Yeah. That's all it is. All right, so I think that's going to be a wrap on Megan. So that is our first top twenty for Alvaro. Now we're going to Undead Ed's top twenty, or as we call it here at the Hollywood Horror Nerds, the Superior. Top 20 horror movies listing. Sure, sure. See, it's unanimous. <laughs> so my top 20 at the bottom of the list, still pretty good to be on the list, is Saw, which is a movie I believe we mentioned. We've mentioned it once or twice before in our previous episodes, and now we're going to get to talk about it a little more in depth. So I'm excited. Are you excited? I'm excited. I'm excited. Let's I'm talk. excited. You're excited. How about that? <laughs> Let's talk about Saw. So Saw is a movie that really defined a generation of horror films. This came out, I don't know the exact year. 2004. 2004. It came out kind of that early 2000s period, and it inspired just a slew of imitations, where for about six to seven years there, every movie that came out that was horror, it felt either it was a Saw sequel, a Saw ripoff, or a reboot of an 80s horror franchise. And the Saw ones were the big kings of the castle. So what was it about Saw that hit so hard that spawned a massive franchise that's still continuing to this day, even if it's somewhat diminished from its heights? So the plot is about, I mean, it starts out, you don't know anything. And this is part of what makes this movie in particular, more so than the sequels, a good movie. Um, the sequels, I'll spoiler, none of the other Saw movies made the top 20. This is the only one that's really worth watching. Saw 1. I'll talk about them a little bit, but yeah, this is the first Saw. So you start off, and it's these extreme close-ups of this guy in this bath that he wakes up. He doesn't know what's going on, and what's great is you don't know what's going on either. He It's dark. He gets out of this bath. He almost drowns. Uh, you learn that you hear someone else talking. There's another man in this room. It's dark. Where are we? We found a light switch. We're in some weird, dilapidated bathroom. And as the characters are trying to figure out what's going on, you're there with them. You're in this bathroom with them trying to figure out what's going on. Why are they here? You want to know who are they? They don't know who each other are, too. And it's almost like a precursor to an escape room where they start getting these clues. They start checking around. They say, oh, there's an envelope on my pocket with a tape in it. Uh, oh, there's a dead guy on the floor with a tape player. Let's get the tape player. And they go through trying to solve this mystery of why are we here? How do we get out? And after and you, it stays in that bathroom for, I, I count, 16 and a half minutes before you actually start zooming out and getting some exposition about what's going on. And this really centers you there because I'll talk about this a little bit. There's a few different movies happening in this movie at the same time. And this bathroom one of the escape is the most interesting one. But the reason they're there, what you learn is there's a serial killer attacking the city called the Jigsaw Killer. And he has this philosophy that people don't appreciate their own lives. You know, he thinks people are sinful and they go through and they're wasting their lives. And he wants to fix that. He fixes that by kidnapping you and placing you in one of his demented games where you usually have to suffer some kind of extreme bodily harm in order to, or do something, you know, traumatic. And at the end of it, if you do that, you live. But now you appreciate your life. You're not going to waste it anymore. And there are... Two cops, uh, the lead cop is played by Danny Glover, who are assigned to this case, trying to hunt him down. Because usually people play these games and usually they lose. They end up dead. It's more common than the ones who win. But the one who wins, you only meet one winner of the game, uh, Mandy Young, who appears in the sequels, played by Shawnee Smith. 
And they ask her, she describes her experience where she wakes up in this room and she has this device that became iconic called the reverse bear trap on her head that when the timer clicks, instead of snapping shut, it'll snap open. It'll tear your, your head open. Uh, she's still, you know, there's a, your dead cellmate is in here as well from when you were in prison. You need, I put the key in his stomach and here's a scalpel. Get the key in three minutes or this device is going to go off. So she has to open him up and get the key, which of course is insanely traumatic. When they ask her, you know, why do you think you, he targeted you? She's like, well, I was a drug addict and now I'm not because I learned my lesson. Now I appreciate my life. So I'm, I, she's actually grateful to him. Um, so he has kind of this Fight Club-esque philosophy, which of course was another movie that was big at the time. Uh, it reminds me of that scene in Fight Club where they drag the gas station attendant out of the gas station. They pull the gun and say, like, what do you want to be in life? And he's like, I want to be like a doctor. So he's like, I'm going to come find you in three years and you better be achieving that goal. Like, you better be in med school. You better be on the way or else we're going to get you. It's that kind of philosophy combined with kind of the sadistic serial killer of seven. And it's kind of these two movies that were big now combined in, in one. And that's kind of the whole Saw franchise. I also think the games that Jigsaw sets up uh, are more interesting than the usual slasher. For you can very easily picture yourself and think, what would I do? Like, again, in this movie, it's the bathroom is the most exciting one. But any of these games that it proposes, you can think, if I'm in this situation, you know, how would, how would I beat it? Could I, you know, sneak through the razor wire? Where can I find the clues? How would I deal with this? And it's more interesting to think, oh, I'm being chased by a guy in the woods. I'm going to run really fast. Um, I have a little more to say. Uh, again, you might be able to tell, I do like this. There's a reason it's in my top 20. I'm excited about it. Um, had you seen this before, before you watched it for this? Uh, I will say no, just because uh, when it first came out, I was a child. <laughs> I was way too young. When it yeah. came out. So when it first came out, I didn't watch it. And then as I got older and I was finally had access to it, there were so many other uh, horror movies that had come out by then that I thought, what's the point yeah. of going backwards? I'm just going to go forwards because otherwise I'm going to keep dropping more horror okay. movies. So for me, watching this for the first time, it was pretty interesting. I finally got what the whole deal with Jigsaw was and everything that he stood for. Um, I finally understood why we were in the scenes we were in and the reasons he, he did things. I will say it was there were aspects of it where some of the things that he made people do that I was honestly going, I'd rather die. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, oh, hey, that's, that's what a, he wants you to that's do. Always <laughs> that's what he wants you to realize. Yeah. One of the people he targets in this movie is a man who was suicidal, and he puts him in essentially. I won't describe it. Um, you have to watch the movie. But he puts him in a death trap, and he says, "The irony is now, if you want to die, just stand still, and the door will lock, and you'll die down here. But if you want to live, you have to go through this crazy death trap to try to live." Um, yeah, it was a. Uh, it, it was pretty gruesome. His death and how it, you're shown it at the end. Well, what's interesting about the gruesomeness in this movie is I actually watched the unrated version, which I had never seen before. But it's not, again, just like the Megan one, it doesn't really add as much as I kind of expected it to because these Saw movies are known for over-the-top gore effects. But this first one was made very cheaply. And it does not, especially if you watch the theatrical effects, very... I won't say it's not gory. You wouldn't show this to a kid. But God, no. <laughs> I can only think of one off the top of my head that I would say, okay, this is a real gore effect. Um, a lot of it is shot in such a way that it cuts away before you see anything super gross. Gory. Right. Uh, you see little little clips here and there. Um, of course, the, the iconic thing, or the reason it's called Saw is because in this bathroom, uh, the, the two characters, they're chained by their feet 
to different poles in the room. And one of them realizes my family has been kidnapped by this killer. And my goal is to get out of here. And he says, if I kill the other guy, then uh, he'll let my family go. But at the same time, they're giving these old hacksaws and they try to cut through their chains and they realize this isn't going to work. I can't cut through the chain. And the smarter of the two realizes he doesn't want us to cut through the chains. He wants us to cut through our own feet and then we'll be able to get out. And uh, I, I will spoil the end here a little bit. Um, eventually, he's, the, the more he realizes his family's in danger, the more stress it puts upon him, and the more he starts considering actually doing it. Um, and you would expect then to see that in this kind of movie. But in this movie, it's a bit like um, in Psycho, where you never actually see Jane Lee being stabbed. It's shot in such a way that everyone who saw Psycho thought they did. This is the same thing. You never, you never actually see the saw cut. Unless you buy the unrated, which you do a little bit, but not that much. Um, but everyone who saw this all thought you did see it because it's shot in such a way that it, it makes you think it does. Yeah, it's it's quite the film to, and what I loved about it is that as uh, as the characters themselves figure things out of what happened right before they were kidnapped is when we also find it out. We, know, it's great at that. We never know anything ahead of the characters. We're learning. We're with them. We're, we're traveling with them. We're learning things as they're learning them. And the only thing that's different is that we get a little bit more of an expanded view that yeah. they don't have access to. But uh, but amongst that, like we're right there with them. There's essentially three stories happening happening in parallel. There are three different kinds of movies. You have what's happening in the bathroom with your two men, and that's like an escape room. And then you have what's happening with the main character's family where they've been kidnapped by the, who you believe is the killer. And that's like a home invasion movie. That's the worst of the three movies. Uh, I'm not a big fan of home invasion movies. No. To begin with. I think they're just kind of easy. It's it's not hard to be scared that there's someone scaring your house. It's an easy fear. Um, so I, I don't really respect that that much. It was fine. And then the last movie with Danny Glover is like a cop movie where the detectives are trying to track down Jigsaw and bring him to justice. And I mean, that one wouldn't be good, except it has Danny Glover. And he really brings it for this. Uh, he puts he, it's it's you want him to keep saying, "Oh, I'm too old for this." Every time he's on screen, he he never does, but he has that vibe. It's super fun to watch. And I just loved how it it very much goes with that whole like disgraced cop needs to figure out what yeah. happened to bring this evildoer to justice. This movie also is full of twists. I feel like a good twist in your movie. This one has plenty. You're never quite sure where you're going. Every time you think you're going somewhere, it goes somewhere else right up until the very end, which we won't spoil here because it's one of the all-time great horror twists. Um, that it reframes the whole movie in the last two minutes in such a brilliant way that even knowing it was coming while I rewatched it for this episode, I have this big dumb smile like, this is so cool. This is such a great moment. Um, this is a great song that plays. That plays in every song. But they've never replicated this twist to, to this degree. Yeah, I will say that that twist ending was great. I did not see it coming. I was already, I had already uh, set my bets on who the killer was. I was like, yes, of course it's him. Like, it all makes sense. Everything we've learned about him totally makes sense. And then, bam. Yeah. I'll even wager, even us telling you that there's a twist, you won't see it coming until it comes. It's that good. Yeah. Um, in terms of characters, they're well acted. They're a little thin. Um, other than the Jigsaw character himself, who is the one with the philosophy, he's the most interesting character. The way he presents it with this puppet that rolls in or the videos of the puppet. The puppet's quite scary. Uh, it's called Billy the Puppet. Good design. 
Um, yeah, it's a good movie. I mean, I don't have too much more to say. The philosophy itself is he's, he's, it's a, it's a, it's interesting, but again, he is the antagonist. I don't. It's not something you, I agree with. Um, as it goes on, Jigsaw's as the series progresses, Jigsaw's presented in such a way that he's like, I never kill someone. I put them in situations, and then they lose the game, and then they die. But there's always a chance to win. In this movie, that's not really established. There's definitely people that he either puts in a no-win situation. Or that he just kills like a, they, the cops infiltrate his lair at some point, and there is uh, a test subject. He says so he was just going to murder that guy. Um, the game the two guys are playing in the bathroom, one of them supposed to murder the other. That was just a murder he was setting up. So he's not quite as innocent as the series goes on. He's presented in a more heroic light, which is weird for a slasher villain. This one feels more real, so I like him this interpretation better. Yeah. One of the things that I liked about this movie, it was such a, a flash from the past. Mm. Where you get to really see like how life was in the early 2000s, where uh, one, one at one point they have access to a phone, and when he pulls it out, you're like, "Hey, that's a flip phone." And one of the things that is mentioned is that this phone can only receive calls. <laughs> yeah. Also, not just in terms of the technology, it is a movie that's so set in that era of 2004, which if you lived that era, it's actually pretty fun to go revisit it now in a movie that was contemporary. Mm-hmm. Also in terms of some of the filmmaking techniques they use in this, uh, there's a lot of very heavy filters, where usually if you're in a jigsaw room, uh, it's, it's a heavy green filter. Um, and when you're in the bathroom, they put like a blue light filter on it. So it feels almost too clean, which is a little off-putting, which really suits that environment. There's a lot of shaky cam, which was really big because the Born Identity had to come out and that kind of introduced the concept of shaky cam. So everyone was using it. There's a lot of these crazy rapid camera spins that happen a bit like the Matrix. So you're seeing all these techniques that were percolating and popping up in that filmmaking era all kind of came into this. So it's actually pretty nostalgic to go revisit today. One of the things that I was I found interesting about this film is the location of it. Um, one of the, the people that is kidnapped is a doctor so the the bathroom intro where or a doctor works in in a place is very sterile very clean mm-hmm. where they were placed in was somewhere that was very dirty very dirty however the lights in that room resembled an operation it room. does and he does he does do a little self-operating by yes. the end of the movie so it was very reminiscent of what you do in life is going to bite you. <laughs> and I'm sure if we were to live in the fiction of the world, Jigsaw planned it that way, that I'm going to put the doctor in a dirty operating room because he's a dirty man. Yeah. It, it's, it's, a, it's a wild ride. Um, I, I, can't, I can't imagine what happened to these people after they left. The psychological oh, if you, want, if you want to know, I'll tell you after the recording, because um, some of these characters do reappear in later Saw sequels. Saw has a very intricate mythology at this point. Um, I've seen some of the movies. I've seen most of the traps, because I like horror and gore scenes, so I just go watch them on YouTube. or well, not all the time, but I have in the past. Okay. Um, and I will say, this is the Saw movie to watch. Um, two's okay. Two's watchable. It's not as good. It's not quite as tight. Mm, okay. um, the games are a little less clear they're not really played correctly um but this one's very good this one i would say most anyone could watch if you're really turned off by gore and that's too scary again this one's not a heavy gore movie but just kind of that knowledge that this is a saw movie might turn you off 
So maybe not for everyone, everyone, but I would say most your average horror fan, if you haven't seen this one, because you got turned off by the later movies, you're just like, oh, Saw is a trash war franchise. This one stands out. This is one that stands on its own. Definitely worth a watch. Well, if it wasn't for this one, the other ones would have been made. That's true. That's true. But it's definitely a franchise that first one, great. Next one, (laughs) that, And then right into the garbage pit. Um, You have the Rotten Tomato score for this one? Yes. I believe it's a little more controversial than the Megan. So for this one, the tomato meter was 50%. Yes. But the audience score was 84. I think that reflects that this level of, I'll say, intensity for a horror film was new. And a lot of critics probably looked at it and thought, this is like a snuff film. This is just gross. Which was the same reaction that critics had when they saw the first Halloween in 1978, I believe. So anytime horror kind of pushes the the, the limits, the intensity limits of the violence, um, it can turn critics off. But I think in retrospect, this film has gained a better reputation. I think also as critics saw where this series went, and they're like, okay, now well, this is really just a violence film. Maybe I can re-examine that yeah. first one. I think if you asked a critic today, they would be a little kinder towards it. And I think again, the audience score reflects that people really respond to this franchise. Yeah, they definitely. It, it has become more of a lore. It has. It's been great. It, the lore is weird. <laughs> the lore is really weird. Really, anytime the word lore gets thrown around in movies, it's always weird. Oh. And this one's no exception. Okay, I think I think that's all I have for this movie. Yeah. What about you? Fun movie. Um, it's a great movie. Great right. movie. I think it earns its spot in the top twenty. Now for our next film, we're going to return to the Alvaro list for his yes. number nineteen. Take it away. And for this one, I was Baba Shooked. Oh, what's the movie? The Babadook. The Babadook. 2014 Australian film. All right, before we get lost in the sauce here, why don't you? <laughs> why don't we lead with the plot synopsis for our dear listeners this time? The so plot synopsis for this film is that is of this mother who is she's a single mom whose husband died while they were on their way to the hospital for her birth, and it transforms until six to seven years later when now she's a single parent overworked overstressed trying to deal with her child while at the same trying same time trying to function with her child as very unruly very wild and gets in trouble a lot as that's an understatement (laughs) it's a very obnoxious child as the film progresses even further you see that her her slow to increase decline in sanity and at the end of the at the end of the film, you're not really quite sure if things are okay. They seem okay, but are they really okay? Mm. So, so that's her setting. She lives with this kid, and she she doesn't get along with her own child. She kind of resents him because of the grief she feels. She it feels like she blames him for the death of her husband who she misses quite dearly. This does a good job with some visual exposition, right? At the start, you see it seven years later. She's still wearing her wedding ring. Her son's sleeping in her bed with her because he has terrible nightmares all the time. So he always wants to sleep in his mother's bed. But she sleeps on the far other side away from us, putting the maximum distance between them that she can, which I think I always like visual exposition in movies. Um, It's a nice little flourish if a director can pull it off. So I liked it here. And he always wants to be read a story before bed every night. Uh, usually a few, and he loves stories where the good guys, he's kind of obsessed with monsters, he's always worried monsters, he has these weird contraptions. He does, he's actually quite a smart kid, he builds this little catapult backpack and a little dart gun, and he says, I'm going to use to defend you when the monsters come, Mom, 
And he's like, stop throwing rocks in the house. I can't afford another broken window. But he pulls this book off his shelf called Mr. Babadook. And she hadn't seen this before, but she starts reading it. Anyways, why don't you tell us what's in the book? What's in the book of the Babadook? Yes. <laughs> well, the book, it starts off kind of benign. It just kind of explaining who Mr. Babadook is. Yes. If, it's in a, if it's in a knock or in a look. Tell me about the Babadook. I can't. I can't remember the poem. You can't get rid of the Babadook. And the the premise is the the first like three pages are kind of nice. Like, oh, he's going to be her friend. He's kind of cute. He's kind of shy. He just he he wants to get inside and be with you. He just he it sounds very friendly. Like it's a friend coming in for a visit until you turn to the fourth page. Yes, and then that's when things get a little. You hear three hard knocks. That's how you know he's there. And once he's in, he, you can't get rid of him. Yes, he'll make you wish you were dead, is the last page. Yeah. So the mother tries to stop reading the book. The son doesn't let her. She, he, he sees enough of it to know the Babadook's a scary thing, and uh, he he loses his Meltdown mind. ensues. Big, this kid meltdowns a lot. Of, this is a big meltdown this kid has. You can see it in the mom's eyes that she's just so done. Yeah. Like you, see, you see that it's caved in. You see the black around her eyes. She's just like, this is my life. Oh, my God. But then even though she attempts to get rid of the book, she attempts to destroy the book, it keeps coming back. And not only does it come back, as it comes back, it starts to feature uh, more pages get added that are more disturbing. And I, where at first it was only um, show a child, in the later versions, once it returns, it actually starts showing her. Right. And it seems her mental state starts to decline as well, we'll try not to... Actually, I think we are going to actually spoil the whole movie because I want to talk about the ending. Um, but eventually, she starts seeing the Babadook. She starts to believe in it as well. And uh, they, they do a little bit of battle with it. So why don't you tell us about why is this number 19 for you? I think this was number 19 because, in a way, this is real-life horror. Take off the Babadook aspect... This could honestly be someone's real life. This hardness of, I am overworked, I am overstressed, I'm trying to take care of my child that in a way I love, but at the same time they're making it so hard because they're so unruly. This could be someone's real life. That's the aspect about it that made me realize, holy cow, like yeah. just remove some of the spiritualness and this is this is real. This is this yeah. could happen. Watching this the first time, I watched this, I must have been 21, pretty young. Um, I'll have to watch horror movies, but still pretty young for that. And it was one of, if not the only movie, no, there was one other movie. This was one of the only movies I ever stopped watching because it was after a party. I was a little drunk. I was in my dorm room late at, late at night watching this on my own, on my laptop screen. And I was like, I have to stop. I am too afraid. Um, you were Baba Shook. I was very Baba Shook by this. There's a lot of the shots of the house that is this the most depressing house anyone has ever shown on screen. Somehow they, they chose this color of blue for the walls that just screams depression. So it's not a pleasant house to begin with. And it's shot in such a way that you, there's a lot of these empty shots of the house at night with these long shadows. And the Baba Duck, when you see him, he's this long, shadowy man who's this you know brilliant white face but everything else you know black lips black hat black coat so you're always looking for him in shadows every shadow looks a little bit like him so you're never quite sure when you're going to see him and when you're not you actually very rarely actually do see him that i could tell 
Yeah, his screen time is very, very small. small screen time for the Babadook. But you're always afraid that he's going to show up, and because he is uh, scary, he's it's a bit like Alien, where they show you just enough of him that your mind then fills in the gaps and make it so much scarier. Um, watching it the second time, again, not as scary because this time I remember the Babadook will appear here, 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 and here, and that's going to be it. Um, but this drama element then became more pronounced, and the movie almost worked solely as a drama, which is impressive. The third act is a bit of a mess, lost in metaphor. So solely as a drama doesn't really work. As a horror movie, definitely works. Yeah, it was such. It was a bit of a slow burn in the beginning. It is. And then once it gets to the middle, once it gets to the second and third act, it really picks up. Yeah. I want to play off what you were saying about how this could be someone's real life. Because when this movie came out, I did a lot of research about what the hell was going on in this movie. It's a weird movie at times. And I've landed on a few theories and a bit of my own theorizing that I think I now understand the Babadook quite foolish. I'm going to try to explain it to you as best I can and to our listening audience because I think understanding... I'm going to say if you haven't seen the movie and you think you're going to be interested, we're going to go deep into spoilers right now. So skip ahead. Uh, More than the spoilers we've already spoiled? No, I'm going to go really deep into the spoilers at this point. Um, it's a very good movie. If you like horror, it's not gore. Is there any gore in this at all? No. I don't think so. Oh, yes. A well, so, sort of. The dog scene is about... Okay, let's talk about the dog. One of my cardinal rules for movies that no movie should ever violate for any reason, don't kill the pets. It's never necessary. No one likes it, even in a horror movie. So I don't think you, you can you can elevate the horror without killing an animal. It's gonna make people, oh, that's just that's just nasty. I don't like seeing that pet die. Now I am upset. And in this movie they kill the pet. I don't like it. What about if it was Pet Cemetery? Uh even in that one, this is a little borderline. You you can you can establish this without murdering pets. Um, but I don't think there's no gore, is there? There's no blood. There's... But it, it's it's a little disturbing. It, so. It's it's disturbing more than anything. You it's... you can get through it. There might be a little like little speckles of blood here and there. But I would say, you know, if you like horror and you're okay being a little scared, maybe watch this one with the lights on. But watch it. No lights on. Uh, if you're brave, watch it with the lights off. But just for the drama alone, the acting's really good, uh, especially from the mother. The son's funny. He never did anything else. This was pretty much it. Um, but the mother and the son, they're both very good. Uh, so highly recommend. And now the spoiler talk is going to begin. So I don't think in the world of this movie, Mr. Babadook is ever real. I think what's happening is the mother is having a mental break over the fact that, I mean, first of all, she's overworked. She works at an elder care home. So she spends all day taking care of people. Then she comes home, and what does she do? She takes care of her son, so she never has any time off, really. Uh, the son is a real terror. Part of the reason he's a terror is because his mother hates him. She hates her son. She doesn't just not like him. She doesn't uh, think he's obnoxious. She hates him because she blames him for the death of her husband, and she's still in such deep grief that she's never been able to confront. She's just stuck in denial and anger. At some point, she talks to her sister about this and her sister's like and she's like i never talked about oscar what do you mean I, i'm not moving I, I haven't brought him up in years and what her sister means is you're still in that denial and anger you've never moved even though you don't talk about it you're still depressed you're still angry you're still in denial you're still bargaining you're not at acceptance yet and part of the reason she can't move on from that is because her grief is causing her to hate her son which is a traumatic thing for anyone to experience hatred of your own child is awful um 
And because she can't confront her grief, she can't confront that hatred. Because she can't confront that hatred, she can't confront her grief. And it all builds and builds and builds until she has this psychic break. And in her break, she writes the Babadook book and she puts it on the shelf. And anytime we see the Babadook, that's from her point of view. She's seen it in her mind. However, it's the son who brings the book to her. He he pulls it off his shelf. Who put it on the shelf? Oh. She puts it on the shelf. She doesn't. I don't think she's consciously realizing it because she's having again the psychic break because she's so stressed. She's not sleeping. At some point, she goes and she gets the son sleeping pills to help him sleep. And I think she takes the pills as well because there's then a funny scene of her kind of floating backwards onto the bed that feels like this is kind of coded like a drug scene in any other movie. So I think now she's on something. Mm -hmm. And that's also when she starts seeing Mr. Babadook coming to get her. So I think, and then there's a scene where uh, he, she, she lets him in, kind of inadvertently. She lets Mr. Babadook in. And from that point on, the role of the mother and the son switch. Where now the son who's been so obnoxious and so loud the whole movie, he's now worried about the mother. He becomes a lot calmer. He becomes a lot more decisive where he's trying to call the neighbors for help. He's not screaming anymore. And she's the one who starts screaming. And she's the one who's going a little nuts. She kills the dog. And she starts trying to kill her son. She's become very disturbed. And what's happened there, she's fully absorbed kind of this hatred of her son. She's allowing it to consume her. Because that's what the Babadook is, is the hatred of her own child. Um, it's only when he uses kind of his, his makeshift weapon to kind of get the better of her. He has her tied down in the basement and he tells her, you know, you don't love me right now because the Babadook won't let you. Mm. That's the grief. The grief won't let you love me, but I still love you, mom. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let him take you. And that's when she has this moment where she vomits up the Babadook gunk. Um, the bile. And that's because then she realizes, you know, I don't have my husband anymore. He, he can't love me. He's dead. I still have my son. And I'm going to actually now fight for my son. So now I'm going to confront my grief. And then they go upstairs and the Babadook comes out her, but she starts screaming, you're nothing, you're nothing, you're nothing. And he diminishes into nothing and goes and hides in the basement. That's because now she can face me. Now she's realized this terrible thing that I built up in my mind is only that terrible because I've allowed it to become that terrible. I gave it the power. Now I take it away, but it's still there. It still lives in the basement. So the end of the movie is very odd. Um, they go out in the backyard and now they're a happy family. Now they're celebrating. They've never celebrated his birthday before because that's also the anniversary of her husband's death. And it's too painful for her. So she makes him do a birthday like a week earlier. Now they're celebrating his birthday. She's encouraging kind of his otter habits. He like, she's encouraging. He loves magic and he loves, um, make these little weapons. And she tells, Oh, that weapon's really cool. This magic trick's really cool. They also gather worms. She goes down into the basement and she feeds the worms to the Babadook who's in the shadows. And she comes up and he's like, how was she? She's like, oh, not that bad today. He's like, it's getting better. And because by kind of acknowledging that that grief is there, some of that resentment is still there. But by acknowledging it and trying to move past it, um, she's able to diminish it. Eventually it may go away. Now, what really ties this whole theory together that makes me think this is 100% what's meant to be happening in the movie. Are you ready to have your mind blown? If we move a few letters around, Baba Duck becomes Dada Book. Dada Book. The Dada Book. What is that? Dada, like dad. Oh, the dad, the it's father. It's all book. about the the grief over the dad. Ah. Why else would it be Baba Duck? That's such a nonsense name. It's a nonsense word. But the Dada Book 
makes sense. This is her way of dealing with it. So I think the whole movie is, is a metaphor for, for her. I mean, the Babadook itself is the metaphor, and we're seeing her own psychic break happening in the movie. I think that's what the movie's about, which I think is brilliant. I loved uh, detecting it after I watched it and figuring out. <laughs> I love a movie that is weird, but you can actually figure it out. It makes you think. Yeah, it made this movie made me think a lot, but I felt like that answer is so satisfying that I got to it. So would you say that at the end, she's living happily with her son, her neighbor? Yeah. And just... Okay. I think so. How did you interpret the ending? I interpret it completely different. In my... So, I, okay, so when you're interpreting the movie, is it literal or is it metaphorical? Metaphorical, of course. Okay. When, when I interpreted this movie, and I also dug deep into the sauce... Uh, I came into a, an alternative conclusion, whereas yours has it with that she's dealing with her depression with her alive child, with her alive neighbor. Mm -hmm. I think they're both those people are now dead. She's really? the only human that's still there? alive. How did you get to there? Because in one of the cuts, in one of the scenes that um, you can see that she's watching TV in which comes on that a mother killed her son with a knife on his seventh birthday. That, yeah. And how he was stuck in the basement. One of those scenes, you see, she's awake and he tells her, Mommy, wake up. And she says, No, how can I be asleep when you're asleep? And she sees him go down the basement, where at the end, she confronts the Babadook version of her husband, but only she comes out of the basement. This lets many people believe that what ended up happening is she ended up killing her son down there. When the neighbor comes to check out, What's going on when the little boy calls her? It is assumed that, after, mind you, all this is after the Babadook has already come into her. She's already right. gone. The Babadook down. comes in. She sees this news report on TV. I remember this. She sees the news report. She sees the news report. Now I read that as this is a vision of the what future, could be where it says she kills him, and because it has to be, because in the news report it says the mother is then killed. And yeah. then she sees herself smiling at her out of the window on the TV. Yes, this is true. But however. It, it's, it can also be into she actually well you can see that she actually does kill someone with the pet so we know she kills the we know that she can do that we also know that she's going through a mental decline because in one of the scenes she uh she's in the kitchen sees a cockroach follows it and sees that they're all uh, there's a bunch of them coming out from behind right. the she, fridge she, she's, and having a, wall. she's having mental issues for sure and the cockroaches so, aren't real. The cockroaches aren't real. We, how do we know they're not real? Because social services comes in to check in on, on her son because he's been missing for school for about two weeks now. So you can see that her mental decline is already started. It's already progressed. It leads to car accidents and it leads her to be fully clothed in the bath at one point where her where her. That's after. That's after the Babadook is in. Yeah, exactly. This is all... Well, let, let's get the timeline straight. So I remember she's she's watching TV... First, she sees. First, she goes to the basement because her husband's down there. Yes, but it's really the Babadook. It's the Babadook. You will bring me the boy. You can bring me the boy. She doesn't give in. She goes upstairs. Then she faces the Babadook in the kitchen, and that's when it gets in. That's when it gets in. That's when it gets in. And that's when things get really dicey. So then, when do you think she kills the son? When she grabs him at one point and she starts choking him. Remember, right. I, I think she never he, stopped. He gets away. Are you sure about that? Because I'm pretty sure. I don't think he did because this is after the neighbor has already stopped by. I think she killed the neighbor. She killed her son. And what ends up happening is that Baba Duk transformed from being a depression of losing her husband to the depression of losing her son. So the, the new Baba Duk is now her son. 
and the reason that she calls that she feeds them at the end all these worms is because she's starting to deal with her depression probably not actually at her house it's so weird that her neighbor and, and her son are so happy with after all this i think that's just her image of how she's interpreting world how she's trying to deal with the fact that she did something so atrocious but at the same time she is now free mm. She is now free because she doesn't have to be a caretaker anymore. She is now being the one being taken care of. Are you sure it's gotten to Megan? <laughs> <laughs> Megan didn't come out until about seven years later. Well, I mean, much like the the Krampus ending, I think I like mine better. Ah. I like endings where they're happy at the end. It's a more satisfying conclusion. Well, and you don't have a. I'm going to say you don't have a good data book flourish to tie your theory together. I don't have a data book you don't flourish, have a flourish, but at the same time, it's. That scene at the at the news, we don't know if this timeline's actually. She's an untrustworthy. No, she, she's, she's not watched because there's too much in there. Because if that's true, then she should be dead. And the news report, she's dead, and she's also looking at herself from the TV. So it's just a nonsense news report meant to say, this is what the Babadook is going to make you do. You you will kill your son, and then you you'll get shot by the police. Perhaps, but I still feel that at the end of the day. Because there's still herself is is in there because she's struggling against the part of her that's Babadook, even then, and the part of her that's herself that wants to be the good mother. And it's not until the Babadook gets in that then that has control until she pushes it out and then it doesn't again. Mm. But yes, they step still, still part of her still lives in the basement, but it only has the power that she gives it, and she doesn't give it power anymore. It's it's a whole psychosis of it. It's it's the whole. Yeah. Well, if you've watched movie. this part without watching it, I think you you've learned part of the fun of this movie is theorizing about yes, yes, yes. And part of that's why, why it's a great movie. This one, Megan, I had an issue with this one. I think it, it, I make, I accept this in the top 20. This is a fair <laughs> one to place in here. Fair enough. Yeah. And again, very scary when you're watching this the first time. Especially in the dark. It also is a bit of a historically significant movie for horror because this came out the same year that It Follows came out. And this kind of spawned what became known in very pretentious circles as elevated horror which is a name that I think is, is a terrible name, but it's definitely a style of horror that, that came out with kind of the soundtracks all kind of sound the same. The visual style is the same. It's all a bit washed out. Um, and the scripts try to do more, even the horror scripts have always kind of done more. It's in the background. Um, I think that the Ari Aster movies, the Robert Egger movies are all movies that are kind of of this subgenre. And the Duck was really the one along with it follows that really launched it. So just like Saw launched kind of the 2000s wave of, you know, the gore movies, the Babadook kind of launched this 2010 wave or late 2010 wave of elevated horror. Mm. I think the Babadook came out first because... It did, I think, but not by much. Yeah. A few months. A year. Uh, under 2014, Babadook, it follows 2015. Well, it was twenty four. I don't know. So yeah, they were productive. They're the very time. close, and I think I do believe Babadook was first. So no. it, it is, and it, it also I think is the best of that subgenre. Now for the tomato meter score. Oh, okay, that should be very good. The tomato meter ninety eight percent. Yeah, I'm surprised it's not ninety nine. Audience score seventy two. Mm, makes it's kind of the reverse of um, uh, Megan. No, the reverse. It's uh, the same as Megan. It's about the same as Megan. It's about the same as Megan. I can see that. This is the movie the critics are going to eat up. Because the acting is great. It has that psychological element that you can dig into. It's a little more dramatic. But an audience who says, I want to see a lot of Babadook. They want to say, I've seen a lot of jump scares. I want to see some gore. They're not getting what they wanted. So I could see the audience score being lower. Yeah. It, especially because it's flagged as a horror movie. And yeah. 
the actual there's no grotesqueness yeah there's sense. some like grossness but not gore yeah there's no yeah. gore there's there's no real on-screen murders or perceived yeah, even murders. it'll make you be like you but it's not going to make you like recoil and, yeah. and disgust it'll make you reflect on your life that's the scariest part yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right so is that it for our good friend mr babadook yes mr babadook well now okay. baba shook away so let's talk now about my number 19 that we just watched today. Yes. A few short hours ago. So it's fresh in our minds. We watched this one together. The other ones we've watched individually. This one is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The 1974 version, not the remake. Which you may have guessed as we are recording, if you remember the top of the show, in a dilapidated farmhouse in the part of Southern California that looks like East Texas. Which is out by Malibu, if you're keeping score. <laughs> now, so this is uh, an iconic movie for horror. It's not, again, the first slasher. That's a very disputed title. But it's definitely in kind of the birth of that genre. It's definitely Leatherface is the first slasher icon who emerges. 1974, Halloween's not till 78, I want to say. Uh and I mean, this just scared the pants off people when it came out. Like I said before, again, it's one of these movies that was made on a shoestring budget. A lot of these iconic horror movies are made that way and just kind of took the world by storm. It's filmed as if it's true. And so the first thing you see in the movie is a title card that said, um, you know, the following, you know, depicts events of uh, a series of macabre crimes that occurred in Texas last year. Here's, you know, a reinterpretation of it. So it's almost supposed to, it's almost like a found footage film, almost in that concept of this is real. It is very loosely, very, very loosely based on the serial killer Ed Gein, because he was known for grave robbing and then using the bodies to make furniture. And that's something that comes up a lot in this movie, um, but not to the extreme level that the, the evil cannibal family in this movie does. Otherwise, the plot's not particularly complicated. Uh, there's a bunch of teenagers who there's there's been grave robberies in Texas and they're going to both investigate their grandfather's grave to see if it was disturbed. And then they're going to check out the old farmhouse, kind of spend the weekend there. I think it'll be a fun trip into the country. And they're a very urban group of people. Uh, one of them is Franklin is handicapped. Um, they're all wearing you know these flower hippie shirts. And they're just a very like for the time. Now you look at it, there's very... 1970s um but for the time they're all wearing what would have been the very latest fashion this one guy's got this shirt with a v-neck that goes all the way to the belt huge v-neck was it a v-neck or was it unbuttoned yeah at that point it's become unbuttoned um <laughs> but they all look like they're very hip one of them is just a straight up hippie just talking about uh, astronomy and astrology astrology excuse me the, the made-up version of it <laughs> um and they're going into the countryside and everyone you see out in this rural area is in stark contrast their clothes are not they're not very fashionable they're not very attractive they all talk when they have these thick texas accents not like the urban people do whether from austin or dallas and they, they, you can tell they're from texas but only a little bit it's the country folk talk right and the whole movie is kind of about this fear if you're an urban dweller of these nuts people out in the boonies who aren't really like us they don't really like us um and maybe they eat people and they're inbred <laughs> Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's not much plot to it. I mean, they, they pick up a hitchhiker, and this hitchhiker scene is another iconic scene from this movie. It's super intense to watch, even today, mm. the way he's acted. 
where it's just so unnerving. There's something about this guy that's just not quite right, and you can't quite put your finger on it, mm-hmm. where he's so comfortable talking about it. He says he works at a slaughterhouse, and he's so comfortable talking about it in a way that these city slickers are not. And they're like, oh, you should never kill an animal just for meat, or talking about how they have to slaughter the cows. Like, that's disgusting. It's inhumane. And he thinks it's great. He's talking about making head cheese. It's disgusting, but not to this guy. And all the, all every movement he makes in the van, and they're in such a tight space, they're moving in the back of this VW bus together, so they're not far away from this guy. He can reach out and grab him, and he does at some point. His movements feel so deliberate and calculated, um, but there's such a wildness to him at the same time that it really keeps you on the edge of your toes. Eventually, he starts cutting his palm with a knife, and even watching today, we both cringed watching it. Yeah. Even though it's not a super gory effect, it just feels, I think because it's not super gory, it feels more real. It was it, it was very odd. The, the very whole, odd. The whole thing. That's kind of the sense of the whole movie. It's like there's something's off the whole time until it kind of explodes in their face. Yeah, and it's, it's it definitely gives you that feeling of we're out in the boonies where no one knows we're really here. Right. There's no way to connect to the outside world. What do we do when things go wrong? Yeah, there's no one that will help us. It's only these people who are insular. They they only care about themselves. And they're out to get us. Yeah. These outsiders have essentially trespassed in something that they shouldn't have. Yeah. The, the teenagers themselves were out there. And um, it's not really spoilers to say only one of them survives. It's that kind of movie. But at what cost? Yeah. At what yeah. cost? What is left of them is the quote. I yeah. Believe. One of them survives. But what is left? Um, they're not very interesting characters. There are slasher movies where... You know, the final girl is actually someone you. The Sally in this movie is kind of a whatever character. Yeah. You remember Franklin because he's a little whiny and he's uh, in a wheelchair, so that's easy to remember at least. Yeah. I can't remember anyone else's name. Uh, so um, it's Kirk was the Kirk. first the first one murdered. He was the one with the really long V-neck that you just mentioned. And I, Kirk, I actually want to mention Kirk because he, again, kind of comes to this point of uh, we're afraid of these country folk. Because Kirk's this big, he's this muscly guy. He looks like he goes to the gym all the time. He comes up against Leatherface. Leatherface smacks him on the head with a hammer one time. Kirk's done. Yeah. And that kind of accentuates that fear that just these these country guys are on another level that we can't really fight. And yeah. once we're in their world, we're in their world now. All the time I spend at the gym doesn't mean anything. But mind you, how did Kirk and Leatherface meet? Where do they meet? Yeah, Kirk, Kirk, I mean, Kirk intrudes on their house. I mean, these, these are dumb teenagers. They keep finding this, this dilapidated farmhouse that is filled with macabre imagery. And this movie really goes heavy on the macabre. I'll talk about that in a second. But yeah, they keep walking into the, it's called the Sawyer house. The Sawyer is the family. They keep walking into Leatherface's lair pretty much. Um, and Leatherface, you know, takes them out effortlessly. Um, something that really comes across is, is the size of Leatherface in this movie. He looks huge. And other slasher villains do that as well, but it's shot, it's shot from like low angles, and you really feel the height difference. He really seems like a monster in yeah. this movie, more so than maybe a Freddy Krueger would. Yeah, you're definitely getting a lot of shots from above him where he's looking down on them, and he feels like such a giant figure to them. And the fact that he's so easily able to knock them out, to get them to get them to the point of death, it's it's yeah quite fascinating and really gross. <laughs> no, there's there's a scene again. It's not this is shockingly not also obviously not that gory of a movie. We may talk about the sequel one day. That is a super gory movie, um, also a weird movie. 
I won't belabor too much on it now. Um, this one, not so much. Again, I think because the effects for that is expensive to figure out how we're actually going to show a chainsaw chopping something up. Mm-hmm. The easiest way to show that, you don't show it. You show a little blood splatter instead. Um, and this, again, was made for a very low budget. So you don't see a lot of gore, but it manages to be just as disturbing as if you did anyways. When Leatherface smacks Kirk on the top of the head, this, this is another iconic horror scene of all time where Kirk walks in the house. You can tell it's a weird house already. You've heard some weird noises inside. It's very quiet. He walks in. Leatherface appears in front of this doorway, and within you know two seconds of appearing, he's already smacked him on the head, and Kirk falls. He's already dead. He has this uh, kind of a death rattle where you know something. He, his already, brain's already smashed, but it's still sending signals to shake around the body, which I think is, is a real thing that can happen. Yeah, the twitch. You, you never see the twitch in any other movie. I've only ever seen it in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it makes that death so much more impactful. No, it really is like ooh, like that one sticks with you when you see it. That was st- the one that actually stuck with me the most was the death of the second character, Pam, the girl that was with him, mm. because when Leatherface kills her, he grabs her and puts her on a meat hook. He does. He does that. That to me was much more painful than watching someone get hit in the head. And again, you don't see that happen in the sense that's going to zoom in on that specific injury but you see it from the front you never see like the 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 hook doesn't come out her shoulder or anything but you understand what's happening and it's very scary it's very traumatic it's scary scary to watch even today and there's a long chase sequence in the movie there's two long chase sequences with leatherface chasing the one remaining teenager sally and again the way he shot it's still scary to this day i think we we were still scared to the, today from watching watch it in it, the yeah. middle of the day. Yeah, uh, the sun up. I mean, they really they really nailed the idea of how do we make him seem like a monster coming after you with a chainsaw, yeah. wearing the. I mean, again, let's, we haven't even addressed the fact that he's wearing a mask made out of the faces of previous victims. Yeah, it, it's very <clears throat> it's very peculiar. Uh, one thing that you've noticed when you start watching it the longer it, um, it goes is that they don't just use the people to feed from. Mm. They use everything of them. What do I mean by that? The bones that are left over become the new decorations. Mm. Um, f- uh, faces become either leather face you sports them or at one point you see a lampshade that is made from faces of previous victims. It's quite gross. Yeah. You get the sense they've been doing this for a long time. At some point when they're first, the teenagers are first approaching the house, they go through kind of a parking lot and there's dozens of cars in there, it seems like. And as you watch more of the movie, you realize these are the cars from their previous victims. And they've been doing this for a long, long time. And it's quite easy to understand why this can happen because... Um, as the movie progresses, you realize that Leatherface is not a solo actor in this film. This is a whole family endeavor. Yeah. The person they met in the beginning, the, the gas station attendant, ends up being related to Leatherface. He's the cook. He's the cook. The hitchhiker that they picked up in the beginning is also related to Leatherface. He's, one of, he's another brother. So you can see how these children were going to die. The moment yeah. they, they step foot in this area. It feels like as soon as they're in the family's world, it's already too late. And they were marked from the start. Yeah. And again, these teenagers are kind of weak characters. Watching the family 
bicker kind of at the end about who's the real killer and who led these kids here, who almost let them get away, and what are we going to eat for dinner? I mean, it, it's almost like a very, very demented sitcom with, with these characters. They're the more interesting characters, for sure. Uh, and that's brought forth more in the sequel, which is the only decent sequel of the series. There's been a lot of Texas Chainsaw movies. I haven't seen all of them, so maybe I shouldn't throw shade, but I'm going to anyways. Um, I, I think if, the, if another Leatherface Maze is announced for Horror Nights, we'll talk about the sequel then, because it it's it's an interesting movie. I don't know if it, I, to this day, I don't know if it's good or not, but it's interesting. Um, but you do see more of the family if you watch more of the series. And I think the bickering is, it, it, it almost makes you laugh, almost because at that point, you've seen so much disturbing imagery and such a disturbing movie, you, you want to relieve some of that tension. So these dumb little arguments they start having kind of gives you that release of tension. Because uh, this whole third act is just nonstop screaming from Sally. Once she encounters Leatherface for the first time, I mean, we watched it in an apartment. I have to turn the volume down every time you yeah. watch it in an apartment because the screaming does not stop for 20 minutes. It's a short movie. It's only 80 minutes. 80-ish minutes. Um, and a good quarter of that is just screaming. Non- and plus chainsaw noises nonstop. So it's nice to have a little break and then right back to the screaming when she starts to escape. Yeah, we had to definitely lower it because we realized that, hey, people around us don't know we're watching a horror <laughs> movie. They might think we're watching something else. Um, but, yeah, it's this family dynamic is very uh, strange. One of the things I was researching is probably that reason. Um, cannibalism is more very, very morally wrong, especially because, you know, it's why would you kill your own species? But one of the things that's that's very dangerous about it is when people start eating the brains and that's when when you eat another person's brain you get the equivalent of mad cow disease which makes you go even crazier Mm. so the fact that these people have been eating countless amount of people's brains at this point probably is they talk about making head cheese at the start exactly it's probably another reason why they've just become so deranged so wild and so chaotic And I think it's just like an upgraded version of how someone who's never been to a rural area in their life might think about crazy people who live off on a street. And they say, okay, let's just amp that up to 3,000 and add a horror element to it. It's it's, Um, it's a wild It only gets to 19. We've seen a lot of good things about the movie, but again, it only gets to 19. It's not in the top 10. That's because I do think these teenager characters are very flat. Um, they had that remake in on Netflix a few years ago. Not a remake. It was like the the, the sequel, but like the sequel three years later. It's meant to be like the Halloween reboot they did that brought Jamie Lee Curtis back. Oh god, no! They brought the actress back, and just who cares? Who cares about Sally? He's such a nothing character. You only really care about Leatherface in this movie and his family. Uh, and again, that third act is just the relentless screaming is a little bit too much. Um, if it had been, maybe she has. Some time where she's trying to hide, or you see just anything else going on. It just it drags a little bit. So it lost a few points for me. But again, just based on how iconic it is, um, it, it launches the Leatherface character again, who's just, I mean, he's one of the best slasher movies. We've seen him so many times at Horror Nights. I'm sure we'll see him again at some point. Um, has to be on the list. And it landed in 19. Yeah, this movie, uh, the Netflix version came out in 22. So only two years ago. Yeah, not good. That one's very bad. It, it, that one's really bad. Yeah, it's like if you thought the first teenagers were flat, then oh, ones boy. are not. What's, at least this movie kind of knows his teenagers were flat. Does it dwell on them? The Netflix one thinks it has these great characters, and it dwells on them. <laughs> oh, boy. Do you not want it to? No, it was, it was not. All right. Do you have the Rotten Tomato scores for this one? 
Yes. So for this one, the, the tomato meter is 89% with the audience meter being 82%. So very, very on par with one another. Now, I would wager it's at that 89% critics because the passage of time. I think if they were taking reviews that were published in 1974, it would be like a 30%. Uh, probably even lower. Right. Because I know whenever – it's just like that same thing with Saw. Whenever one of these movies comes out that pushes the barrel. A lot of the imagery in this movie to this day feels like it's pushing the barrel. Um, a lot of it's never been equal. Because a lot of movies, this become gorier. I don't think any movie has ever been as macabre as this movie. And because a lot of it is like skeletons, which isn't really gore because it's, it's just a skeleton. Um, you see them in Disney cartoons. But you see so many of them that they seem so realistic. That it just it's just troubling, um, the kind of troubling in a fun way. Yeah, they, it's not disturbing in the way a movie like uh, Hereditary or Funny Games would be. This one you can actually watch as a slasher movie and scares you, but doesn't turn you off. Yeah, it's 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 a wild ride. Yeah, um, definitely. If you're if you're into slasher movies, you haven't seen this one. What are you doing? Go see this one. This is iconic, birth of the genre, right here. Uh, get out and watch it. If you hate slasher movies, um, this is not for you. No, definitely yeah. not. And if you are against the use of animal products, don't watch this. Yeah. If, if you like horror movies, but horror movies like The Babadook that have a lot to chew on, have some great acting, have some great characters, got some good plot, this isn't for you. <laughs> I don't know. They got a lot to chew on. Oh, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Okay. So that was our first two movies each of our top 20. I think we're going to take a little break and we're going to come back and we're going to put them in a bit of a ranking. So what we're going to, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. We'll talk about that in a second. Let's go uh, eat some barbecue and then we'll rejoin you, good folks, in just a minute. Hey, right, welcome back. How did you enjoy that barbecue? It was delicious. Um, it's a little thing. gaming. Not bad. Leatherface's barbecues always hit the spot. Yeah, the say. meat just comes right off the bone. <laughs> so before we leave you, we're starting as kind of a company of this segment. We're starting something else as well. That's going to be every time we talk about a movie on this podcast, we're going to start putting them into a tier list as well. This will be available to view from our social medias. So you'll be able to, if you're interested in kind of going back and watching these canon horror movies or any movie that we've talked about, you can go view our list, find out which ones you think are good, which one you think are bad, and it just gives us something more to talk about here in the episode, uh, whether or not we agree with each other's rankings. Yeah. So first, before we get into this episode, we're going to quickly place the Christmas ones that we talked about two episodes ago. Uh, we can pre-discuss this. We're going to put Black Christmas in D. Do you think that's fair? I think that's more than fair. Yeah. If it was in a lower level, yeah. it would have been lower. We think it was interesting, but we didn't really like it. We're going to put Krampus in kind of a high A, kind of an A+. Yes, it's the highest tier. And Gremlins is going more like just a normal A. Yeah, one tier below amazing. And now let's talk about the four we had for this episode. For first, for Megan, I know it's in your top 20. I want to put it at like a high C, low B. Where, where, where do you want to put it? 
That's that's fair. All right, that's I'm easy. Right. That's I'm right. I think your characters are weaker than Megan. Yeah, you get the C tier. Sorry, Megan, that's where you go. Better luck the next TikTok time. The TikTok dance really saves the show. Not <laughs> the TikTok dance. You go right to the Black Christmas dance. Yes. <laughs> now for the next one. Next would be Saw. Saw. Um, where do you want to look? If this is my movie, where would you rank it? See, the thing is, it was a good movie. It wasn't particularly great for me, so I wouldn't put it with Black Christmas. Maybe around Megan, so around C. I would put it at least in B. Hmm. I guess. At least, at least a B. A solid middle. I can accept a B. I'll let you go for I'll let you choose this one for now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the next one is Baba Shook. Baba Duck. I would, I would put up there with Krampus. Really? The yeah, psychological. Like the a plus. I don't know if it's really S. You put Krampus in S. I think it's more like A plus. I think. Krampus is S. Krampus is, a, I mean, um, Babadook's above Gremlins, for sure. Of course. For sure. You can, you can, within the list, within the A itself, you can move them. You realize. Really? Yeah. Oh. We're learning stuff about tech support here on the Hollywood Horners podcast. I would put it in the A. We would put, well, uh, first of all, I, I would move Krampus down to A. Krampus, you wouldn't put it as S It's not an S. It's not an S. <gasps> wow. Krampus is very good. S is a special movie. What would you consider as S? Well, we have to go through my whole top 20, don't we? Ah. But I would definitely put Babadook above these other ones. Okay. We'll go from there then. All right. Um, and you agree? It's your movie, but... Yes, I the yeah. Babadook was really... I liked that we had different opinions on what it really stood for. I think that's the strength of the movies. You can walk away with different interpretations. And they, you don't feel like you're wrong. You feel like just... It's fun to think about. Yeah. And then the last one, one Texas, Texas Chainsaw. Chainsaw. My movie, where do you think it goes on our tier list? <laughs> it was a lot of yelling, a lot of screaming. Um, for the birth of a genre, I would say about a B. I would say B. I would put it like one tick above Saw. I'm, I'm cool with that. I wouldn't put it above something like Gremlins. I think Gremlins oh, no, is no, no, no. stronger overall. Yeah. I, do, I, mean, I like, like Texas. It's definitely not like a C or a D for me. Um, it's a good movie. It had better characters. Yeah, uh, I'm talking about Gremlins. Yeah, Gremlins. Because <laughs> okay, so if you look at the list, you'll see Gremlins is the next movie. Yeah. Up. So we're trying to figure out where does it go in between different movies. I think more. I mean, Saw. I really like. There's a lot to chew on for Saw, um, but again, the characters are a little flat, and uh, Texas is just has a little more going on. Yeah, it just a... feels like Texas is a better movie. The talk. One's 19 for me. One's 20. There's reasons why. <laughs> exactly. Even if they're hard to articulate. Yeah. Leatherface has his own dance at the end that rivals Megan's that's dance. That's true. That's that's a crossover we need. Yeah. yeah. So the we need a dance off Leatherface versus Megan. I want to see Leatherface bonding with Megan and Megan trying to sing her Disney princess songs to Leatherface to soothe his soul. <laughs> oh no, the bonding. All right. Well, that wasn't a very contentious tier list. I thought we might have some more arguments. But that came out pretty easy. So maybe one day as we go through a list, we will get some movies into that S tier. All right. Yeah, I think. I think maybe down the line from the movies we talked well, about. Well, certainly I can tell you some of my movies. Now, what's interesting, just to give you a little preview of upcoming attractions, you said you never really went back and watched older horror movies. I'm going to tell you from my list, I think there's one movie that is modern. It's almost all classic. So you're really? going to get a real education here. But I think that's good because your list then should be very different from mine. 
It should. I will say most of my movies are more modern. Not to say all of them are. Yeah. I have a few movies that go way back. I don't. There's no silent movies. Why? Spoiler alert. I considered. I considered a few. I considered fan of the opera, but uh, didn't quite make the cut. Um, but there's there's some there's some black and white movies on there. There's some old horror. Yeah. So it'll this will be fun. Oh. I'm excited. But I think for now that's gonna do us. Yeah. That's all right. So we'll we'll go to our outro and we'll see you next month. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to this production of the Hollywood Horror Nerds. We know you have many options for your listening entertainment, and we're glad you chose us. Find us on Instagram at Hollywood Horror Nerds, on X at HW Horror Nerds, and on YouTube at Hollywood Horror Nerds. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite alternative podcast site to ensure you don't miss next month's episode. And until then, stay scared out there.